0: I would be lahim in a shaitan or regime, smilah or Rahman or Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wasallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin Wali Hitayibina Tahirin. Allahumma Salih ala Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad. Previously, we examined how the Prophet Sallallahu alayhi wa'ala received revelation and that the first to believe in him where Imam Ali and Lady Khadija, peace be upon her. There is one point that has been debated amongst the scholars when it comes to the revelation that the Prophet received. There is discussion amongst the scholars that when the Prophet received revelation in Ghar Hira' in the cave of Hira' that first time, for a while, he stopped receiving revelation. This is called Fatrat Inqita'a Al Wahi, the period of the cessation of revelation, when the Prophet stopped receiving revelation. Now, there are a number of theories as to why that happened and how exactly that happened. We see that. A number of traditions mainly narrated by Sunni sources claim that when the Prophet stopped receiving revelation, he expected Jubrail to or that angel to keep visiting him, right? He did not see that angel for a while so he started getting worried. What's going on? Why is, not God, why is God not sending me revelation? Did something happen? Has God abandoned me? What's going on? So he gets very worried, he tells Khadija AS, according to some of these traditions, that I'm not receiving revelation. Khadija, you know, who initially we thought she's supporting him, suddenly turns against him and she tells him, you know what, maybe God has abandoned you. That makes him very, very worried. Some hadiths state, He got so worried where he contemplated suicide. He thought of going and killing himself because God is not sending revelation. One hadith says there was was a woman in Mecca, she told the Prophet when she heard that he's not receiving revelation anymore, supposedly she told him, she asked him, you know, that devil that you saw the first time, you know, it's good that he is not harassing you anymore. And some words like that. Let me share with you actually some hadiths. Bukhari narrates a hadith from the Prophet in which Jabir supposedly, Jabir says, I heard the Messenger of God say that there was a period in those early days when I stopped receiving revelation and then suddenly I heard a voice from the sky, I looked towards the sky, I saw that same angel, that same angel was sitting on a chair that filled the universe, that filled the skies, so I got scared, I got so scared I fell on my knees and then I came to my family, to my wife and I told her, Zamiluni, zammiluni, cover me, cover me and that's when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed, "Ya that's the reason for this revelation. So this is one version that Bukhari tells us. Another hadith that we find in Bukhari and Muslim is that lady which told the Prophet sallallahu alayhi she tells him, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful, I'm glad that that demon who was terrorizing you is, is, is no longer harassing you and you're not seeing him. Now, Sunni scholars, when they've examined these traditions, they were asked, why would God do that? Why would God stop sending Jibra'il to the Prophet for some time? Their philosophy, their justification, their answer is that the Prophet, when he first met Jibra'il, remember how he met him in Sunni sources, right? He scared him, he suffocated him, he squeezed him until he almost died, that kept the Prophet in a very fearful state, he had anxiety, he had panic attacks, so God wanted the Prophet to calm down because he was traumatized, so God wanted some time to pass, the Prophet calms down, he becomes more familiar with this business of revelation and how Jibrail is going to meet him right, once the Prophet's anxiety goes away then God sent the angel to come with new revelation, that's their argument, that the reason why God stopped revelation is to give a break after this traumatizing experience to give the Prophet a break. Now let me ask you this question, based on your sound judgment, your intellect, do you accept any of this? Not really. And then they've actually said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed this verse that when Allah came back with revelation after this period of time, now we don't exactly know how long this was, some say three days, some say 12 days, some say one month, some say three months, the Prophet stopped re- receiving revelation, so when Allah sent Jibra'il back, he came with these verses of Surah al duha Bismillah ar-Rahman rahim wal-layli saja. مَا وَدَّعَكَ رَبُّكَ وَمَا Allah says in the Holy Qur'an after swearing by the duha, you know that time of noon and the night, Allah says God has not abandoned you, he has not forsaken you, don't worry, I have not forsaken you, Khadija told him God has abandoned you, God is saying don't worry, I'm not abandoning you. So this is the common version that we see in, in many Sunni sources, there is one Shia source in Tafsir Al-Qummi, that also claims this from Abil Jarud, Abil Jarud was a man of corrupt beliefs, he's the leader of the Jarudiyya school of thought and that hadith which we have only one hadith about this in our books, it does not have a sound chain, it's a broken chain, we don't know the chain of narrators, so it's not a reliable hadith, it's a weak hadith, so we Shia's we don't have any valid hadith that tells us the Prophet got worried and that Khadija told him God has forsaken you. So we have several observations over here, first of all when we examine these hadiths we find that many of them are from Qatada and Bahaq. they have narrated many of these hadiths which supposedly state that the Prophet you know was anxious and he stopped receiving revelation and that he thought God wanted to abandon him and he committed, he he thought of committing suicide. Qatada and Vahak are known to get a lot of their information from the people of the book, from Ahlul Kitab, so we can't really trust them when they deliver such information like that, we have reason to believe that they were heavily influenced by the people of the book, so we cannot really trust them, that's number one. Number two, this story is telling us that Allah sent the revelation the first time with Surah Iqra, Iqra Khalaq. Then the wahi stopped, revelation stopped. Then Allah revealed Surah al-Duha, in which He tells him, "I have not forsaken you." Well, upon historical examination of when Surah al-Duha was revealed, when was it revealed? Was it the second chapter to be revealed? According to these stories, it must be the second chapter because Allah sent Iqra, Surat Al Alaq. Then revelation stopped. Then the first thing He received was Duha. So that makes Surah Al Duha the second chapter to be revealed. But we, when we examine Surah Al Duha, it's actually the 11th Surah to be revealed. We had Alaq then Qalam, then Muzammil, then Mudathir, then Lahab, then Takweer, then A'la, then Inshirah, Al-Asr, Al-Fajr, then Duha. So all these nine, ver- nine chapters in between, when were they revealed? According to this fictitious story, right? All scholars agree that this is the sequence. abuha came as the 11th chapter in the Holy Quran. That means between Alaq the first chapter and LoHa you had how many? nine chapters so when were they revealed then? I thought Wahi stopped so when would how were they revealed? So this is an indication that there's a problem with these stories that we cannot really accept, so when it comes to the cessation of revelation we cannot accept that he started getting worried that Allah Subh'anaHu Wa taala made him feel that he was abandoned and that Khadija would say something like that, Khadija was the first to believe in him, she's now going to come and turn against him and say you got to be worried God has abandoned you, that's not acceptable, so what really then did happen? First of all we're not really sure if Wahi stopped, we don't have any actual evidence, hadiths, correct hadiths that tell us Wahi stopped, However, assuming that it did, there is a reason why it did, can you guess why? It's not what these Sunni scholars state that the Prophet wanted, that Allah wanted to give the Prophet you know a break because he was traumatized and Allah wanted him to calm down, we don't accept that. When the wahi stopped for a few days or let's say a month or two, why? What was the reason? Yeah, but that doesn't explain why revelation should be delayed. In fact, if you have more revelation, that would show people that the Prophet is refi- revealing revelation every day. Yes? Was it to test the Prophet's patience? No, the Prophet had absolute patience. It was not to test his patience. Isn't it just to test the believers? To see if they're going to stay steadfast? That's half of it. To test the believers, yes. Because when some of those early, early believers were expecting the prophet to receive revelation every day when the revelation stopped for a few days that actually was a way to shake them and test them to see if they believed it's like prophet musa it's like prophet musa when he was delayed exactly allah extended his trip to test the believers so that's half of it how many times this this happen again the delay so based on the hadith that we have this happened twice during the prophet's time 23 years during the 23 years, twice Wahi stopped this is what we believe, the stop. like I said for the first time we don't have actual actual evidence like a Sahih hadith but there are indications that yes it did stop so days, most likely it did, three days to nine days? we don't exactly know the duration because the hadiths are conflicting so I can't tell you exactly but maybe three to twelve days maximum one month, it didn't take that long But there was a gap, yes. Wahi did stop. So that's half of it, to test the believers. The other half, to prove to the pagans that this was revelation from God. How? Yeah, otherwise we can answer them right right away. See, Allah wanted the people to know Muhammad, he was not bringing these words from himself. And the best proof is that Wahi stopped this showed the people that the Prophet is not speaking from his own because in those desperate early days he needs Wahid, he needs constant revelation but it stopped, this was a powerful way to show the people that God is in charge, he's sending the words so he stopped them, it wasn't Muhammad because if Muhammad was making up those words why would he stop them? in fact he would keep coming up with those words so that was a powerful way to show the pagans that God is sending the revelation, so don't forget you pagans, this is coming from higher up there, from high above, this is not from the Prophet, that was a great way to notify them of that, so it was not to give the Prophet a break because he was traumatized, because we know he was never traumatized, he was ready for the revelation, it was to show his people that this is revelation from God and that the Prophet does not speak from his own self, if there's revelation he'll speak, if there isn't he won't, so this is discussion on the cessation of revelation, in قطع See Is there any reference to the other schools of thought about involvement of the Prophet in this issue? Because if there wasn't, then that would negate the, the reality that he was really involved in the first place, right? The what they have mentioned in their books is that Waraqa ibn Nawfal died and then the wahi stopped so the Prophet really didn't have someone to go to and reassure him right? I've seen in some of their sources they claim that Waraqah ibn Nawfal after the first time he assured the Prophet right right and then he died quickly after that he didn't really stay long then Allah stopped the wahi so the Prophet had no one to go to according to their version yeah, so supposedly, supposedly he died before this happened. In any case we have several observations, we don't believe that you know Khadijah did that or that the Prophet got worried or he contemplated suicide, that is all nonsense, that's not something the Prophet would ever consider and Allah would not do that to his Prophet and if it really did happen that the wahi stopped, it's to show the people that this is revelation from God that he's the one who's sending the words, not, not the Prophet making up those words. But we don't believe that he was contemplating the suicide. No, no, we believe that contemplating suicide would actually you know make the Prophet not eligible to be a Prophet if he were to do that because when you commit, when you contemplate suicide that means you've lost hope in God's mercy. He was, just patient, he was patient, he was not disturbed, he was not anxious, He knows Allah has a plan and he knows Allah will send the verses when it's appropriate. So he did not become anxious and he started getting worried. No, he never got worried. He knew exactly what God's plan was. because you had evil hands of Bani Umayyah, who were truly enemies to the Prophet and they found every opportunity to slander the Prophet, to reduce from his position, to say that he's just a normal human being who contemplates suicide, so really it's the enemies of the Prophet who wanted to desanctify his personality and they came up with this, It's just based on enmity and jealousy, Remember the Prophet was also the object of those tribes' jealousy, when they saw him so successful and God chose him, that made them very jealous so they just came up with every way possible to attack him, to slander him, to reduce from his position and that's very unfortunate but you see this you know, even in Bukhari and Muslim and some of these sources and that's extremely upsetting. How? Imagine Bukhari itself says, out of all of humanity, out of all messengers, God chose the Prophet sallallahu So out of how many billions of people throughout history, God has chosen this man to be the best of messengers and yet this poor guy contemplates suicide, that doesn't make sense, something's wrong here, something is wrong here, in fact there are many people better than the Prophet based on this, they went through very difficult trials, they never contemplated suicide, but the Prophet would and he actually tried, remember the hadith we discussed last week? He actually tried to throw himself from the mountain but Jibra'il kept you know holding him still and warning him not to do that, he actually tried and that tells you he lost hope from God, how can God choose a messenger who's going to lose hope in him and the Prophet's going to teach me about hope when he himself lost hope? The Prophet was the symbol of hope. He gave hope to all of humanity. He's going to lose hope himself? That's ridiculous. Yes? You know how you said that uh, there's those nine surahs that came before that? Before Surah Al Duha, yes. If uh, Did any scholars, the Sindhi scholars, have anything to say once that was mentioned? Like, do they have any arguments? I didn't see them making any specific arguments, but they'll they'll come up with a way to justify that. They could either say, you know, we're not sure these nine were revealed. Maybe this hadith that talks about Surah Al-Duha is one of those proofs that Surah Al-Duha was the second chapter. They could come up with that. There's many ways to justify these hadiths. Or they could say this verse was revealed and then God revealed the full chapter. They have many ways, they won't, they will not admit so that's about the Wahi. so we reject that, we the followers of al-Bayt, we reject that you know the Prophet went through this agonizing experience when the revelation stopped, if it really did stop it was for a wise purpose to show the people that he's just a messenger and he's not the one who's coming up with the Holy Quran. Now let's go back to that very important discussion of who became Muslim first we established that Imam Ali alayhi salam was the first person to believe, then Lady Khadija alayhi salam. well what do the Sunni schools of thought say, today if you ask any Sunni they'll tell you that the first person actually was Abu Bakr, he was the first person to become Muslim, if you tell them about Imam Ali either they'll reject that Imam Ali was the first, no 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 Abu Bakr was the first or they'll say he was a boy so doesn't really count, the first man, mature man to have embraced Islam was Abu Bakr, upon historical analysis was Abu Bakr the first adult, male adult to become Muslim or not? What do the historical facts tell us? I heard that there's like about 13... We'll examine the facts now. First of all, when do we see the claim that Abu Bakr was the first man? During the Prophet's life did anyone make that claim? No, during his life when he became the Khalifa do we see any references to that? No, in fact on the day of Saqifah when he was chosen as the Khalifa some of those supporters tried to mention his virtues, was this one of the virtues they mentioned that he was the first to become Muslim because if you are going to be chosen as a Khalifa and you were the first person to be a Muslim, that's a big plus for you, that's something definitely that would be mentioned. In Saqifah if you look at Sunni sources, is that something that was mentioned? No. So we see that in the Prophet's life there was no reference to that, in his life there was no reference to that, it was never a virtue for him. Later when the Umayyads came, suddenly this became a virtue. What does that tell you? Fabricated. Because if that was really the case, you would see earlier sources that would have confirmed that. You know, at Saqifah, we would have heard this virtue. At the time of the Prophet, we would have heard some companions saying this, but none of that exists. Even during his lifetime, he never said, I was the first Muslim. So, so these hadiths were actually fabricated later. So, what were the virtues they mentioned? They would mention some virtues, like he's the companion of the cave he was with the Prophet when he left Mecca right, he was in the cave, that was a big virtue they mentioned, his age you know he's older than Imam Ali so he's more fitting to be the Khalifa, they mentioned some virtues like that, he's the father-in-law of the Prophet, so they did mention some virtues but at Saqifah this was never one of the virtues but this is the most important one if it was the case right, he's the first to be Muslim so if you want to choose him as the successor, that should be your most important virtue. But we see no trace of this virtue at Saqifah, which is an indication that it was fabricated later. When you talk about the, the companion of the cave, the question most often comes, what happened when the Prophet left the Makkah with Abu Bakr and they had a camel and a guide. So when they hid in the cave, what happened to the camel? Where did the camel go? When it comes to the incident of the cave, the event of the cave, when we get to that point in the prophet's life when he migrates, we'll uh, uh, in detail we'll examine that, inshallah. We'll examine all of these questions about the cave. So let's so let's delay that till till that time, inshallah, because there's because there are discussions on that. Yes, brother. So basically when Muawiyah and the Bani Bani Umayyah, Muawiyah's time when he started paying some companions to fabricate hadiths, that's when we see such hadiths starting to surface, Before before that it was not mentioned, even during the time of you know the Khalifa himself, when he was the Khalifa he could say whatever he wants, you're the ruler, we don't see that, we see that when the Umayyads came to power, so we're talking about several decades after the Prophet, Even after Imam Ali's Khilafah, yes, yes. so we're talking about three, four decades later, we start seeing these hadiths surface, so even during his lifetime Abu Bakr, he never heard this virtue himself, right, so which tells us that this was fabricated, this is upon, you know, close examination. Number two, the second point over here, when they fabricated those hadiths, they attributed them to companions like Ibn Abbas, Abu Dhar, people like Sha'bi even though these same companions narrated that Imam Ali was the first, so what does that tell you? There's a contradiction here, they themselves are saying Imam Ali was the first but according to those fabricated traditions they supposedly say no Abu Bakr was the first person to believe in the Prophet, so that in itself tells us there's a contradiction over here. Number three, Aisha herself, the daughter of Abu Bakr admits that he was not the first because she says in hadiths that Imam Ali, Khadija and Zayd ibn al-Haritha, they were the first three to believe so where's Abu Bakr? she mentions Imam Ali and Zayd before Abu Bakr, herself Aisha, the daughter of Abu Bakr what does that tell you? was he the first or not? Yes, we have this in Sunni sources, I can send you the references. Sunni sources attributed to Aisha state that these three were the first to be Muslims. So Aisha herself, he's her father, if that was a virtue she's definitely going to mention it. She doesn't even mention that, so that you know tells us a lot about this claim. So when exactly then did he become Muslim? When we gather the historical clues, the historical clues are very, very different than what many Muslims claim. He actually became Muslim years after revelation. Some clues say three or four years, but some more authentic clues say seven years. Seven years after the Prophet received revelation, then Abu Bakr became Muslim. So let's examine some of these. Clues. Number one, Sunnis claim that the reason why Abu Bakr became Muslim in that story is that the Prophet went to the ascension, the Mi'raj, after he came back from the journey of the ascension, Quraysh started attacking the Prophet. Oh this liar, he claims he went into the heavens riding on a flying unicorn, they started attacking the Prophet mocking him, Abu Bakr came and he said no the Prophet is speaking the truth, supposedly according to this hadith, the Prophet told him you are the Siddiq, you are the truthful one who believes in truth, that's the meaning of Siddiq, the excessive one who believes in truth, when Abu Bakr was told that by the Prophet, he became very happy, he became a, uh, a Muslim. Sunnis have narrated this hadith and that's how Abu Bakr supposedly got the title Siddiq. Okay, let's say, let's tell our Sunni brothers, fine, let's accept this hadith for the sake of argument. When did the Ma'raj happen, the ascension? No, 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 it was before, it was in Mecca. The earliest sources say three to four years after Revelation, many say five or six or seven years. So it was definitely not before three years and if they're claiming that he became Muslim after Mi'raj, that means what? It was three, at least three years later, three to seven years later. So this in itself is proof, an argument that we can use to say he was not the first and there were many Muslims in those early three years who actually became Muslim, many people. Sometimes they do, sister, but that's their belief, that's the core of their school of thought. They'll come up with justifications. You know, if you really corner them, like, okay, fine, this hadith that talks about the mi'raj, okay, the narrator made a mistake. They'll find a way out because this is a core belief that they have. And when you have a core belief, even if you see hundreds of narrations, let me give you an example. Let's say, let's say, I come and bring you a hadith that tells you God forbid, God forbid, Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib salam committed a crime and I said and I show you the hadith with the chain, will you accept or no? You're not gonna accept because you are firm in your belief that Imam Ali is an Imam chosen by God, so all these hadith, throw them against the wall, I don't care about these hadiths, I'm just a theoretical example, same with them, the truth is there but because they have a core belief, he's just the first, no argument, they won't accept any argument, they'll find a way to you know respond to your argument but these are the historical clues so we tell them from your sources you've narrated this, okay if we accept this hadith of yours that's a clue that he became Muslim later on, not in those early days, yes brother, Yes, he, he, he publicly did declare his Islam, whether he was truly a believer or not that's another discussion, but yes he did say the shahadatain and he did you know join the Muslims, yes, but remember we have a verse in the Holy Quran, not a verse a whole chapter in the Holy Quran, Suratul Munafiqoon, so you do your historical research about that was yes, he did join Muslims and he did apparently become Muslim. So in Sir Al-Halabiya, which is an important Sunni source of biography, he mentions that Abu Bakr got this title after the event of Mi'raj, the ascension and that and after that he became Muslim so that happened a few years after, so this is one clue. The second historical clue, Tabari who's a scholar of the biography, he says 50 people became Muslim before Abu Bakr, 50 people, Tabari, a Sunni scholar is saying that and how long did it take by the way, 50, for 50 Muslims to become Muslim? At least three years, at least because in those early Three years you did not have fifty Muslims yet. So this tells you Abu Bakr became Muslim at least three years after the Wahi, after the the religion of Islam. Wasn't the figure given of seventy-five at the time of Hijrah? There are a number of figures, but we're just using what Tabari is admitting. Tabari says fifty, okay, we'll take fifty. Now is that seventy-five true at the time of Hijra? There are 75? No there were probably 200 to 300, no it was more than 75, when the Prophet migrated we definitely had more than 75 Muslims. So here Tabari is admitting you know that 50 people became Muslim and then Abu Bakr became Muslim, they have many many contradictions because the hadiths they received was not based on a pure source, we take our hadith from the Imams of Ahlul Bayt, they are the truthful ones, yes we do have to research to make sure we get them from the Imams but when they've accepted that any companion is just and it's a valid source, when that's not the case, according to the Quran, some of them were hypocrites, some of them were unjust, that's what you get, when you don't follow Ahl al-Bayt, you fall into contradictions, because those companions, not all of them were truthful, they made up stuff, they made mistakes, but the Ahl al-Bayt is the pure source, that's the primary reason, they resorted to sources that were not fully pure, that's a big source of contradiction, and a lot of these hadiths, you know, they've, you, you find it going back to a, one of the companions and those companions, many of them, many of them were good, yes, but some of them were not Mu'awiyah paid some of them to fabricate hadiths and that's the problem so that's one reason, there are other reasons as well but this is one primary reason, another is a political reason, many of them were commissioned by the state and the state have their own political agenda but that's a different story The third clue that, the third clue that we have Ibn Kathir in his book al bidayah wa Al-Nihayah in a hadith that has a Sahih chain, correct chain according to their standards, Muhammad Ibn Sa'd he says, I asked my father, was Abu Bakr, his father was a companion, was Abu Bakr awwalukum islaman, was he the first to become Muslim? he says, la, no, and before him 50 people became Muslim, so here is a Sahih hadith according to Sunni sources that says 50 people became Muslim before him, and it's not in Bukhari, it's in Bidayah and Nihaya by Ibn Kathir but the chain is an authentic chain, remember Bukhari didn't mention everything, it just has five thousand hadiths, many things were left out from Bukhari and so other scholars came to gather those hadiths that Bukhari did not he was Yes, Ibn Kathir is selective and Ibn Kathir is anti-Shi'a too, he heavily attacks the Shia, yet he brings this hadith, now yes the the end of the hadith is something we don't accept, supposedly he said 50 people did become Muslim before him but he was the best Muslim, okay that's their belief but in the end we'll use this hadith to prove that he wasn't the first, He was Afdal because he was the best of the companions, he had the highest virtues, the closest to the Prophet, well he became the first Khalifa so you have to justify it somehow, right? If someone's going to come and ask you, you Muslims, why did you choose him as your first Khalifa? You have to make up stuff like that and say okay he was the best Muslim. So this is one proof that we have over here, another proof that not only Shia is narrated, Imam Ali in a number of hadiths, authentic hadiths, for example Ibn Jarir in his book Tariq, in the second volume page 60, he mentions this, Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib he says, incorrect hadiths that Sunnis can't deny, he says Imam Ali, I believed, I became Muslim, before the people did by seven years, when would Imam Ali say this now the Imam is not making, not bringing any names right, he's hinting, what does Imam Ali mean when he says I believed before people did by seven years, the Imam Salam, remember at that time there was a lot of chaos in Muslim society, oftentimes he couldn't bring names because if he brought names there'd be civil war, so the Imams when they would talk about who's the Khalifa, who's the rightful Caliph, who represents the Prophet, Imam Ali would say I believed before they did by seven years, what does that say, what does that indicate, what is he hinting? Of course, he should be the first. But what else is he hinting? That they became Muslims seven years later, and who's they? The caliphs. He's referring to the caliphs, right? The caliphs. That's what he's referring to. Even though he's not specifically specifically mentioning, but the context of this speech and these hadiths indicates that he's talking about those companions. Yes, brother. Which sermon is this We have many hadiths. I can send you the reference but the point is the Sunnis have also mentioned it and I gave you the reference for the Sunnis, we have in our hadiths many times in which he said that nas I prayed before people by seven years, I believed before people did by seven years and what he means by people because we know some people did believe in those early years so he doesn't mean everybody, when he says people he's, he means specific people and it's known by the context of his words, what he's referring to. When you gather all of that, all of that, it gives you certainty that he was not the first. So, who was the first? Who were the first people to believe in? The first nine or ten. So, Imam Ali, alayhi salam, Lady Khadija, that's a given. Then, who? Zayd ibn Haritha, Khalid ibn Sa'id ibn Al As. Abu Dhar al-Ghifari, he was amongst the very very early ones, probably the fourth or the fifth Muslim to join the Prophet Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas, Ammar ibn Abasa, Yasser came a little bit later on, we're talking about the very first few days Ammar ibn Abasa, Qutbah ibn Ghazwan, Ja'far, the brother of Imam Ali, the son of Abu Talib Bilal al-Habashi, he was amongst the early ones, Khabbab ibn al-Arat, he was amongst the early ones, Zubayr, the cousin of the Prophet, he was also amongst the early ones, so these are some names of those very early Muslims and all of them according to correct historical hadiths, they became Muslim before Abu Bakr all of these names we have proof and evidence, they became Muslim before Abu Bakr so these were some of the early uh, you know Muslims who joined the Prophet, now when you look at the history of Islam how some other schools of thought view it, one of their claims about Abu Bakr other than the fact that you know they claim he became the first Muslim, they claim he was instrumental in bringing people to Islam, he was the person who invited many of those companions to actually become Muslim Is that acceptable or not? when we examine the biography of Abu Bakr we see that this is highly highly exaggerated, many of these hadiths are contradictory and they're flawed so we really can't accept this claim that he was so instrumental in bringing so many people to the religion of Islam, in fact Abu Bakr could not convince his own father and son, his own father Abu Qahafa he did not become Muslim until 20 years later when the Prophet came to Mecca in the year of the conquest of Mecca, then he became Muslim. His son, Abdul Rahman, he didn't become Muslim. Even his own sister, um Farwa, his wife, Namla, or according to one version, Qatila, he could not make them Muslim, right? Now you're come, coming, you know, you're gonna come and say he was so instrumental. In fact, without him, none of those early Muslims would have become Muslims. That's an exaggeration. We don't see that in his biography that he was instrumental in bringing uh, people to the religion of Islam. His daughter Aisha. When did she become Muslim? If you ask Sunni schools of thought, they claim she was the 18th person to become Muslim and her sister Asma was the 17th, so the 17th was Asma, the 18th was Aisha. There's a major flaw in this claim, what is it? According to Sunni belief she wasn't even born at this time because the Prophet supposedly did the marriage contract with her when she was how old? No, 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 they're even worse than that, not nine, six. She was six when he did the marriage contract, the marriage was consummated when she was nine. But he did the marriage contract when she was six, the aqid, the katsb as we call it. No that was in Medina, the Prophet married her in Medina. So wait a minute, if she was six or nine when he married her, the Prophet married her in Medina and when did he go to Medina? After how many years? After 13 years he went to Medina and after he went to Medina, after a while he married her, so if she was nine, When he supposedly married her, how was she the 17th Muslim? She was not even born yet. How is she going to become a Muslim? So this tells you that one of these claims is a lie. Either she's not the 17th Muslim, or she was not nine when he married her. So, schools of thought. You need to figure that out. Which one of these is correct? Or they could be both incorrect. Another claim is that uh, Aisha was the third wife. She was one of the early wives, I don't know exactly which wife they consider her to be but she was one of those early wives, according to what they say. As for her sister Asma, she was four years old when the Prophet was sent as a messenger. When he received revelation she was only four, so come on that's very unlikely that she was the 17th Muslim when she was four when he started receiving revelation, so it tells you that there was a political agenda to make it seem that Abu Bakr and his two daughters and his family were amongst the very very first to become Muslim and that's not really the case and let me tell you even more about that. There's a verse in the Holy Quran in Surat Al-Ahqaf verse 15. In this verse Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about you know the human being when he reaches the age of 40 he says, Allah is talking about this turning point in our lives at the age of 40 when we thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we say, Oh Allah, thank you for giving me my blessings and for blessing my parents. For blessing me and blessing my parents. Sunnis claim this verse was revealed in honor of Abu Bakr. And his parents because they became Muslim, they found faith, so Abu Bakr praised Allah, he thanked Allah for making him a believer and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answered his prayers and he made his parents Muslims. That's the version that we are told. So this is one of the virtues supposedly that they have claimed Abu Bakr had He said a prayer "O Allah bless my parents and Allah revealed this verse in his honor, what do we say about that? Number one Abu Bakr was not 40 when he became Muslim as we've demonstrated years later so he was 44, 45, 46 when he became Muslim, so the Quran says arba'ina sana he reached the age of 40 that's not applicable to him, he was not 40, that's number one. Number two we just mentioned that historical sources tell us his father Abu Qahafa, when did he become Muslim? 20 years later, when the Prophet was in Medina so this verse can be applying to him because this verse is supposedly when he was 40 Abu Bakr, early in Mecca and his parents did not become Muslim early in Mecca, his mother did six years later but Abu Qahafa, his father 20 years later, so that doesn't add up, Number three, Surat Al-Ahqaf verse 15, verse 15 of Surat Al-Ahqaf where was it revealed? In Mecca or Medina? In Medina, it was not revealed in Mecca but supposedly where did he say this? In Mecca, when he became Muslim at age 40, he did this prayer, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answered his prayer and he revealed this verse. This verse was revealed in Medina, the one who fabricated this forgot this fact that this verse was not revealed in Mecca for it to apply to Abu Bakr when he became Muslim and he asked God to make his parents Muslim and Allah answered his prayer then he revealed the verse, no, that's not the case, so we see a lot of you know fabrications about this unfortunately, yes brother? Um, what what, what that verse referring to we're not discussing the tafsir of the verse right now, it has a tafsir and ta'weel we could discuss that but the point is it does not apply to Abu Bakr. Now let's examine the stages of the da'wah of the Prophet, he received revelation, for the first three years the Prophet's message and preaching of Islam was not universal, meaning he did not go very high profile publicly with his mission, inviting every tribe and every people, it was a period in which the Prophet's mission was semi-private, it was low profile, the Prophet did not go everywhere and announce this mission, it was pretty selective and in fact it was not mandatory on people to become Muslim at that time, it was an optional stage where it was optional for you to become Muslim and join the Prophet it still was not a firm instruction by God to obligate the people to become Muslims. So this is the first stage of the Prophet's da'wah that we see, those first three years and the reason is very obvious, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted the religion of Islam to come in stages to prepare those early Muslims, to avoid clashes with Quraysh because if you go very public with this and you start you know universally attracting people then obviously Quraysh would start persecuting the Muslims, killing the Muslims, killing the Prophet and that was too soon, Allah wanted a core group of Muslim believers to carry the faith of Islam, then the Prophet would go very public with it which came later and they tried to kill him so he went to Medina, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted the smooth transition and for this reason we see in those early three years the Prophet ﷺ was kind of selective in his mission and in fact you know there were many people who had still not heard about the mission of Islam, it was not a public declaration yet, that came, that came later on, any, any fighting at that time would have uprooted the Muslims and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to protect the Muslims. Now as the Muslims started joining 10, 15, 20, 30 people, they would pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala invoking the one name of God the pagans started noticing that, that these Muslims are praying in fact the Prophet sallallahu alaihi according to some hadiths along with Imam Ali they would go to the hills and mountains to pray sometimes so they don't attract too much attention from Quraysh some Muslims would do that as well but Quraysh started noticing that, you know what, these people they're forming a cult and they're praying and they're doing these acts that disturbed them, some clashes happened, some pagans clashed with some of those Muslims who wanted to practice their Islamic rituals, as a result the Prophet sallallahu chose the house of Arqam which was very close to the Grand Mosque, it's on the hill of As-Safa, so just you know several hundred yards from the Grand Mosque, he chose that house for a short period of time to serve as the center for Muslims, as the area in which they could freely worship Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, secretly and privately. So we don't exactly know the period, it was a brief period but there was a point in which the house of Arqam, represented the headquarters for Muslim, the Prophet and his companions would pray together in the house of Arqam in order to avoid any you know clashes with the pagans, so they would go there privately secretly worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so we do have sources that actually indicate the Prophet chose the house of Arqam in order to avoid any confrontation with the people of Quraysh. The Prophet sallallahu stayed a few days, some sources say a month, until the number of Muslims became 40. Once the number of Muslims became 40, now the Prophet had many supporters compared to the very few that he had initially, then they left the house of Arqam and they became more and more visible in Mecca. So after the Prophet left the house of Arqam, this represented a new dimension in the Prophet's life a new stage in the life of Muslims and it was a very difficult stage, it was a stage of persecution, it was a stage in which the Quraysh would slander the early Muslims, they would persecute them, they would drive them out, so very very difficult days came for the Muslims after they left the house of Arqam. Let's talk now about some of that persecution and some of those early Muslims who joined the message of the Prophet. So Abu Dhar, Al-Ghifari, Abu Dhar was the fourth or fifth companion to become Muslim, we know Abu Dhar was one of the best companions of the Prophet, how did he become Muslim? If we look at most of our sources especially the Sunni sources, they mention that first of all Abu Dhar comes from the tribe of Ghifar. Ghifar were around Mecca to the north, And some members of the Ghaffar tribe were known to be looters of caravans. So if a caravan would be passing by, they'd attack the caravan, loot their goods and then let them go. So Abu Dhar came from a tribe like that, which tells you in his youth, you know, he had a bad start probably. He came from such a tribe. There are some sources that indicate he used to do that himself. He used to attack these caravans and loot them. He hears, he hears that Muhammad sallallahu alaihi has brought a new religion. He tells his brother, go and see this you know, person who's claiming to be a prophet. Tell me about him. I want to know more about him. His brother goes, he meets the prophet, he comes back to Abu Dhar and he tells him what he saw. He still wasn't satisfied, Abu Dhar. He wanted to personally meet the prophet and see him. So Abu Dhar comes to Mecca, he doesn't have any place to go, no house, so he stays in Masjid Al-Haram. Imam Ali alayhi salam, according to these sources, notices Abu Dhar is a stranger, he's sleeping in the Grand Mosque, so he approaches him and he tells him, I find that you're a stranger, can I host you? He says yes, so Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib for three days he hosts him without asking him any question, why are you here? what's your mission? what do you want? he doesn't ask him anything, at the end of the third day Abu Dhar asks Imam Ali, he tells him I've heard about this man called Muhammad and he's claiming things, I'd like to meet him and hear his message, I might believe in him, can you take me to him? remember in this early period Islam was still you know um, being delivered privately secretly so Abu Dhar was taken to the Prophet in a secret way, so it does not really bring the attention of the pagans. Imam Ali secretly takes him to the Prophet, he meets the Prophet, he hears the message of the Prophet, he falls in love with the religion of Islam, he becomes Muslim. Now, after becoming Muslim, he comes to Masjid al Haram, he starts yelling, an Allah ilaha illallah. The pagans become furious, who's this bold guy who's defying our religion and he's supporting Muhammad? So they surround him, they start beating him, they push him to the ground. When they're about to beat him more, Abbas comes, Abbas at the time he was pagan, the uncle of the Prophet, he comes and he tells him, do you know what you're doing? Abu Dhar comes from the Ghifar tribe. In Mecca, if you hear Ghifar, you start shaking. We, the Meccans, we need to travel north to Syria for our business transactions, right? For trading. And Ghifar is in our way. If they hear what you did to Abu Dhar, imagine what they're going to do to us. So they let him go out of fear. The next day he comes in Masjid al-Haram he does the same thing, they're about to beat him again when Abbas comes and he saves him, so it seems Abu Dhar early on he had this tendency to be outspoken when it comes to the truth and we see that very visible during the times of those caliphs, especially Uthman when he would speak the truth and Uthman had him exiled and he died while being exiled, so Abu Dhar was one of those very very early Muslims who was pegged in his faith and he was full of love for the Prophet Imam Ali and for the religion of Islam. Now we have a Shia hadith in our sources and when you look at the chain of the hadith, it's actually an authentic hadith, some find it strange but the hadith tells us why Abu Dhar went to see the Prophet, What's it, what is it that pushed him? Remember he's just a tribal man, busy with looting those caravans or I don't know doing what, what is it that really attracted him to the Prophet? There is a hadith narrated from Abu Basir from Al-Imam al sadiq a.s. in this hadith Abu Dhar was one day herding his sheep, taking care of them, when a wolf came, the wolf wanted to attack from the right side, he pushed him away the wolf came and attacked from the left side he kept pushing the wolf away but the wolf was very persistent Abu Dhar got agitated and he said you're such an evil creation anything I do you keep coming back the hadith says which I said it has a sound chain, so it's an authentic hadith the wolf spoke, the wolf spoke to Abu Dhar when Abu Dhar attacked the wolf and said that you're such an evil creation, you're the most evil creation, who's more evil than you? The wolf said, no Abu Dhar, the people, the pagans of Mecca are more evil than me, for a truthful man has emerged amongst them and they're attacking him, so this hadith in our sources tells us intrigued Abu Dhar and that's why he went to meet the Prophet in Mecca and that's how he became Muslim, it started from this incident, Allahu A'lam, if it's authentic hadith or not, the chain is reliable, every person in the chain is a trustworthy person so we trust the chain but Allahu A'lam you know whether this incident happened or not, if we accept the chain which is an authentic chain then this is an incident that happened with Abu Dhar, yes. Abu Dhar was extremely significant and one of the best companions of the Prophet and the reason why, not only during the life of the Prophet, we have many stories during the life of the Prophet, he was instrumental after the Prophet, he exposed the hypocrites and he was one of those companions who firmly held on to Imam Ali and Ahlul Bayt and he exposed the Caliphs so he played a very important role in saving the pure Islam so yes he was one of the most important companions, in any case we have this hadith in our sources so that's Abu Dharr, he's one of the first and early Muslims, let's quickly mention two others before we end, the second one is Bilal Al-Habashi who came from Abyssinia, he was an Abyssinian Ethiopian slave, Bilal was one of the greatest companions He was owned by Umayyah ibn Khalif. Umayyah was a man, a Meccan man. He owned Bilal. Bilal, he was a slave. He heard the message of the Prophet. He heard the Prophet is speaking about freedom. He's talking about worshiping God, about moral values. He fell in love with the Prophet's message. So he became Muslim. His master, Umayyah, found out that he became Muslim. He told him, You my slave, without my permission, you went and believed in Muhammad? How dare you do something like that? I want you right now to disbelieve in the one God and to disbelieve in Muhammad. He refused, he would say, ahadun ahad, only one God, only one God. What did he have? How did he punish him? He would have him dragged to the hot desert, they would strip him from his clothes so that his back would be on the ground, On the hot ground, for those of you who have gone to Mecca, you know how hot it gets. The hot ground, they would put him there and then they would bring huge boulders of rocks and put it on his chest. And they would beat him and whip him and they would tell him, stop believing in Muhammad. He would say, ahadun ahad, there's only one God. They would have kids drag him in the streets and make fun of him, but he never stopped. Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib praised Bilal for this, he was truly one of those great companions of the Prophet. Now we are told by other schools of thought that Abu Bakr came, he saved him and he bought him, we dispute that, we believe according to authentic sources because all those hadiths they're contradictory anyway, without getting into their details why they're contradictory, we believe the Prophet sent some companions, Abu Bakr if we accept that he was Muslim at the time or he was acting maybe on behalf of the Prophet as a messenger because sometimes the Prophet would send some people who were not actively fighting him to do something for him, so we either dispute the fact that he was involved in buying Bilal from his master or we believe he was sent by the Prophet with another companion who bought Bilal from his master on behalf of the Prophet, he gave them the money, so he was just acting as an intermediary, in any case the Sunni history tells us that Abu Bakr bought him, purchased him, he freed him, then you know he came and he joined the Prophet so Bilal was one of those great Companions, and then we all know that the Prophet assigned him to be the Mu'addin, the one who calls uh, to the adhan and to the prayer. That's one. And the last one, Khabbab ibn al Arat. Khabbab ibn al Arat is a very interesting personality. Khabbab, he was owned by a Meccan woman. Her name was Um Anmar al Khuza'iyya. Um Anmar al She owned Khabbab. Khabab was one of those early Muslims, one of the first 10 Muslims to believe in the Prophet sallallahu He hears the message of the Prophet, he becomes Muslim, she finds out, she becomes furious, what does she do? She takes out iron rods, heats them in the flames till it became red hot, then she would iron his body, she'd strip him from his clothes, she would iron his body, to the point where he would lose consciousness out of the pain and suffering, she would tell him stop believing in Muhammad, he'd refuse and every time she would iron him. Look at the iman of those early Muslims, you know sometimes we go through a difficulty, we lose hope, we lose faith, what we go through is not an inch of what those early Muslims went through, imagine what this poor slave had to go through just because he believed in the Messenger of Allah. One hadith, a very interesting hadith, tells us he came to the Prophet, he complained to the Prophet, he told him, Ya Rasulallah, you see what's happening to me, I want a prayer from you. So the, the, the Prophet sallallahu tells him, Allahumma ansur khabbaban, oh Allah support khabbab. What happened is his owner, that Meccan woman who owned him Om Anmar, she developed a severe headache such that she used to bark like a dog, that's what the sources tell us, that's how she would bark and the pain was so severe, the only thing that would kind of soothe her is to have an iron rod which is hot go over and iron her head, that's the only thing that would stop her from that So she came to her own slave, which she took an iron rod and she would iron his body and his head and put it on his head, she told him take this iron and put it on my head, that's how Allah sought the revenge. So he would take the iron rod and put it on her head from her own request, at her own request, just so that it makes her stop barking from that severe headache and severe migraine. Khabab was truly a great companion. He moved to Kufa when Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib moved to Kufa. When he passed away, Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib prayed on him. He did the salah on his janazah and he did a dua for Khabbab. He says, oh Allah, Khabbab was one of those Mujahideen, one of those people who truly struggled in your way. Oh Allah, have mercy on him. So these are some of the very, very early Muslims who really sacrificed in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وصلى الله على محمد وآله الطيبين الطاهرين اللهم صل وسلم, علیہ وسلم